open our Bibles to our first reading, which is in the Old Testament. It's going to be part of Genesis 37 and then Genesis 39. So it's going to start on page 31 in your blue Bibles. We're actually going to begin at the end of verse 17. You know the story, I'm sure you know the story of Joseph very, very well. Uh, The favored son with a coat of many colors. This is the moment when he goes looking for his brothers out uh, who are taking care of the sheep. So uh, Genesis 37, the very last sentence of verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him not into this pit, or throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand, to restore them to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And after some time came several traders, traffickers in humans and other wares coming by, and you pick up at verse 28, then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Of course, then they took his coat, ripped it, spit, poured blood on it, took it back to his dad, and said, Is not this your son's coat? And his father's heart was broken. What happened to Joseph? Well, chapter 39. Chapter 39, beginning at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, of the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. Yahweh was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him, and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hand, so so Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome, was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And because he refused, you know the rest of the story. He was disposed of at the master's pleasure with no recourse to justice, no appeals, cast off into prison to vanish, or at least his master thought so. And now we turn then to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, we're going to pick up at verse 18. This is on page uh, 1015 in your blue Bibles. We're just doing a series through First and Second Peter. Memories, ma- uh, manners, m- manners, memories, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. So we're just picking up right where we left off. We finished up verses 13 through 17 last week, and now we move to verse 18. Servants, be subject. 
to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, when he was slandered, spoken of as an evildoer, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All that I've read to you and all that I have summarized even is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen. You may be seated. Well, yes, you probably do know the story of Joseph in great detail. Young guy, trafficked by his family. Just like happens very often today still in the countries of Thailand and throughout the Middle East where the family sells a child into slavery, sex trafficking, and so forth. Sold off into slavery, used by his owner, looked upon as a tool, as property, and as a sexual plaything. He has no rights. He has no recourse for justice when falsely accused by his master's wife. He displeases his owner and is disposed of. My friends, the story of Joseph resonates with the experience of over 24.0 million people today, according to the U.S. Depart- State Department. 24.0 million being human and sex trafficked today throughout the world. And Joseph's story would have resonated with countless of millions upon millions upon millions of nameless people for multiple millennia who experienced the same. And so Peter has something to say to Christians who are in that situation here in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25. Now, as I mentioned last week, you have to start with verse 13, because there you have the big mouth of a funnel, our civil and social engagements, verses 13 through 17, and then that funnel kind of narrows into the house, into the estate, and here you have the Christian slave, verses 18 through 25. The funnel is going to narrow even more to wives and husbands, verse chapter 3, 1 through 7, And then it's going to become very pointed at the bottom to the household of God in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. You've got to keep all of this together because Peter is keeping it together. And the Holy Spirit wants us to keep it together. You will notice the three points are on the back of your worship, worship guide. That peculiar institution. That puzzling inclination. That prefiguring example. 
And so the first point is actually not going to be dealing with much in this passage, but more what's behind this passage, and then we'll move into the passage in the last two points. That peculiar institution, that title, that peculiar institution was the title that was given to slavery in, the, in, in America, uh, and that's what it was called, that peculiar institution, and it fits our passage. It's helpful for us to place this situation that Peter is writing into, what he is assuming and what he is giving directions for, we need to place it. Unfortunately, sometimes people think that American slavery was the worst ever created by humans, and the reality is, it was like almost all other slavery, unfortunately. Still just as evil and wicked. There was not much special about it. It was still just as depraved. Here's what I mean. Roman slaves... Roman slaves were often those who were captured in war as well as people who were hijacked off of ships by pirates and many, many others, and they were taken against their will and sold into slavery. The number of slaves in Rome, the lower estimate that I found, is that around the time of the New Testament, slaves made up to close to 35% of the Roman population. That's one-third of the Roman population was enslaved. Now let me give you a little perspective. I went and checked the 1860 census. The census right before the Civil War, the 1860 census, slaves of African descent made up 12.6% of the U.S. population. One-eighth of the population. Hopefully that gives you a sense of the difference even here, the vast majority who were enslaved in Rome. It got to the point that in some places in Rome, slaves and freemen equaled in number. At Pergamon, for example, and other places. My friends, Rome was truly a slave society. What does that mean? It means the whole economy was built upon the backs of slaves. It means also that education, industry, farming, textiles, government, administration, and more were all built on the back of slaves. And they were all supported by slavery. And so if slavery ceased to exist in Rome at that point, it would have destroyed the country. It actually would have created and worse evil. What happens when a nation has no government and no infrastructure left? What does it turn into? Anybody know? Chaos. Just go to Africa and some places in South America. It creates a horrible, horrible evil that is a vacuum that sucks in tyrants and bullies and brigands who use muscle and bloodshed and machetes to get their way, and there is no justice for no one. It was truly a slave society. That further means, as recorded in the studies, that masters in Rome, that masters in Rome, out of fear of their slaves were allowed to deliver harsh punishments, usually whippings, but other forms of torture, to keep their slaves in line. Roman slaves were called property, and they were treated as such. They were forced to give in to whatever demands their master made, almost like Joseph here. 
If a slave accused his master of a crime, the slave by law could be stabbed to death. And so since this was the case, since this was the case, just a little thoughtfulness will help one to recognize the larger context. The law would have been, the law would have been and was on the side of the masters along with the academy, along with the country club, along with the pub, along with the police department, along with the Boy Scouts, along with the neighborhood watch associations, along with Fox and CNN. All of them were on the side of the masters. And there was no way to really escape. You could try to leave the country if you could make it out alive, but then the next country was doing the same thing. There was nowhere really to go. You can get a sense of what I'm talking about in a more recent history if you want to read Solomon Northrup's book from 1853, 12 Years a Slave, where he describes what it's like to live in an environment like that, where everything is on the side of the masters. And so the reason why I'm making this case is because you have to realize it's into that context It's into that kind of context that Peter is writing these words. That means then that Peter is not encouraging. He is not encouraging or fostering slavery. He is taking it as a matter of fact and addressing Christian slaves on how to function within that given system because there was nothing anyone could do about it. Does that make sense? Okay. Now what Peter says does not preclude slaves seeking liberty if they can legally get a manumission, get an emancipation. Just go read 1 Corinthians 7. Paul would agree. And what Peter says here does not prohibit slaves from running away, though that would have put one in greater peril than if he had stayed or she had stayed. But Peter is addressing life within a hard reality and addressing it in a way that will help Christian slaves to silence the ignorance of foolish people and will be right before God. And so inside that peculiar institution then, Peter presents the puzzling inclination. Here I do want to look at verses 18 through 20, that puzzling inclination. The inclination, the leaning, the aim a Christian slave must take is in the direction of integrity. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the just. Even though a master may be unjust, enslaved Christians were to exhibit respect. Why? Because, verse 15, because they really are not enslaved, they really are free people. And they're free people who are refraining from using their freedom as a cover-up for evil, but rather using their liberty, even in what may be socially enslavement, still using their liberty in the service of God. In fact, the Christian slave's inclination arises from the same motive of verse 13. Here's the motive, remember, of verse 13? That he says to all of us, be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject out of regard and concern for the Lord and His honor and so forth. Well, he says something similar in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. 
Peter goes on even further by pointing out, pointing to God's desire. God's desire in a most miserable and an irremediable situation. He says it there, when he goes further, he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 20. Notice that the point here will come up again. Not just for Christian slaves, but it will come up again for all of us, no matter our station in life. What Peter says in verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, Christian slaves, and you endure it, this is a gracious thing before God. Peter will will universalize that statement in chapter 3, verse 17, when he says to all the rest of us, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. And he'll say it again in the passage we read before the confession of sin in chapter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Notice that the very focused inclination that Peter says to Christian slaves in chapter 3.20, he turns around multiple times and he universalizes it to all the rest of of God's people. This puzzling inclination that Peter is directing, therefore, has broad applications that go outside of the narrow, horrible boundaries of slavery. Much of what is here, what is stated here, for Christian slaves is actually universal for all believers. And so if that's the case, and it is the case, then why is Peter making this passage, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, why is he making this passage so pointed for slaves? Well, let me give you two aspects. On the one hand, Because these would be areas where Christian slaves would be easily tempted to go wrong. To disrespect their masters, to bow up against their masters, to to, uh, fight against them, to do sins because, for whatever reason, be the area, one of the areas they'd be the most easily tempted to do. It's very much like what Paul said in Titus chapter 2 when he said, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. With just or unjust masters, Christian slaves would be prone to be disrespectful, would be prone to be dishonest, pugnacious, and pilfering. Now, I wasn't a slave in the Air Force, though some of my compatriots thought we were slaves. We were just poorly paid most of the time. Uh, Indentured servants, maybe you'd say. And it was amazing the rationality that would go on. And I saw this happen. Well, Uncle Sam's not paying me enough. My supervisor's not not giving me the street credit that I do, so I'm going to steal these things. And they people in the military would steal lots of stuff. There was all kinds of programs to keep that from happening. But it was the rationale. I feel dishonored, and so I'm going to go and steal a little tit for tat, a little quid pro quo. Well, if that was the case in a, 
in the military, how much more would that be a case with Christian slaves? That's what I'm getting at there. And so Peter is targeting an area where temptation would be most likely for Christian slaves. But on the other hand, my friends, taking Peter's approach where he is being very pointed here in verses 18 through 25, but then the very things that he says to the Christian slaves, he ends up universalizing If you take his approach and realize what he's doing, then you realize that one of the things he's doing as he's talking to Christian slaves is he is aiming at the excuse-making that probably would have arisen. It's as if Peter is actually saying, look, all Christians, Christian slaves, all Christians should be this way. And yes, that means you too, even you Christian slaves. You cannot claim victimhood. You cannot claim any right or entitlement that gives you some kind of excused excused absence. You cannot claim, well, my personhood has been violated, therefore I will retaliate in kind. You can't, because all Christians are to be this way, no matter their station and condition in life. That's what Peter is doing there. And so, this is a puzzling inclination because it would have puzzled the socks off of all the fellow slaves who weren't Christians. What? You're not going to steal? What? You're not going to be lazy? What? You're not going to try to, you're not going to, try to uh, uh, destroy the master in some way or harm the master in some way? What? You're not going to join us in that? What? What's wrong with you? Are you sick in the head? It would have been puzzling to the fellow slaves and anyone else who might end up in their condition. But it would also have been puzzling Because it flies in the face, what Peter tells the Christian slaves to do and not do, flies in the face of what is sinfully normal and what is sinfully expected by masters and the majority culture. The masters knew they were going to do these things. The majority culture knew they were going to do these things. And here are these Christian slaves, and they're not doing these things? What? That's weird. The point It's a puzzling inclination. And the reason that Peter can direct this puzzling inclination is because of the prefiguring example. And this is verses 21 through 25, the prefiguring example. And what is the prefiguring example? It's Jesus. He's the prefiguring example. Notice verse 21, for to this you have been called. What I've just told you to do, to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. Peter is saying, look, it's your vocation to follow this route, even if you have to suffer while you're doing good. It's your vocation. Why? Because Christ suffered wrong for you. Which means he left you a pattern. He left us a pattern to follow and a path to walk. And the pattern of Christ prefigured is the way that we actually are to face suffering and to face injustice heaped upon us, especially when we have no legitimate way out. Notice how he puts it in verse 22 and 23. Jesus committed no sin. And when you know the gospel stories, it should puzzle you that he committed no sin. Because what would you have done in a kangaroo court? What would you have done if you'd been unjustly and illegally hauled away to be stand before this judge, jury, and hangman called Caiaphas? 
What would you have done when they smacked you in the face and, and, and stripped your back and ripped it to smithereens? What would you have done? I know what I would have done. Right? You get the point? Jesus is puzzling because he didn't. And he's the prefiguring example. Committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Well, they lied, I can lie. No, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he was slandered, when he was spoken of as an evildoer, he did not retaliate in kind. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now again, there is a universal application here because Peter has actually already addressed some of Jesus' traits back in verse 1. If you look back up at verse 1, where Peter says to us in, to us in verse 1, so you Christians put away all malice and all deceit. Put away all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Reviling. Notice that. Jesus' example is not just for Christian slaves, it's for all believers. And our Lord, our saving, our rescuing, our substitutionary sacrificial Lord marked out this path. And thank God that Jesus is our saving, rescuing, substitutionary sacrificial Lord who marked this path out. Verse 24, for he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Thank God that Jesus walked this path. And I want you to notice the last sentence in verse, 20, uh, verse 24 there. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter is drawing from Isaiah 53. Right? The passage about, you know, we did not esteem him, but we, when we did esteem him, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Oh, we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he lifts out of that passage that sentence, by his wounds, you have been healed. That last sentence would have spoken volumes, my friends, to slaves whose backs had been ravished by leather whips and flails. And the scars would have been a sign and symbol of shame to all the Roman culture that would see it. By his wounds, you have been healed. It would not have taken away the raw, raped flesh or the scarred, raised reminders or the horrid memories but it would console many to know that in the eyes of God, their wounds that caused them shame in their society was no cause of shame before God. By His wounds, you have been healed. Their wounds, their scars were no longer a mark of shame. In fact, Peter comes down to the heart of the matter for most, yea, for all these slaves, and truly for all of us. It's verse 25, for you were straying like sheep. Now just stop a moment. That's why there was slavery. 
Because we were every one of us, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, Jane, Jeannie, and Julie were straying like sheep. That's how we ended up with slavery and have had it for multiple millennia. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What an interesting word, overseers. What would slaves have had out in the field and in the the master's house, ruling them? Overseers. But most of their overseers had whips and would have flailed them. Isn't it interesting? We've returned to the bishop and overseer of our souls. And you notice back up in verse 24, this overseer took the whippings for us. This overseer took the whippings for us. And so, my friends, three things as we end. First off, none of what I have just said or what we've just read mandates that a person must remain in an abusive, oppressive situation. Dear friends, if there is oppressive violence, whether it includes verbal, spiritual, financial, or emotional oppression against you by family members, by groups, by acquaintances, and so forth, you can cry out for help, unlike in Peter's day. We'll talk more about this next week. Unlike in Peter's day, there are legitimate places to go for refuge. There are loads of legal and social resources to help. It's one of the major reasons our congregation participates, for example, in Ministry Safe. So that we can be a part of the remedy and not the disease. And on a more national and international level, it's one of the reasons why I and my family have been supporting International Justice Mission as they seek to move local and regional governments throughout the world to come to protect and to liberate kids, women, and men who are being trafficked, whether in just full-blown slavery or sex trafficked, etc. So there are resources, and there are groups out there that you could be involved with to be a remedy. But second, though Peter is writing to a specific group of believers, Christian slaves... In verses 18 through 25, yet the universal applications come to us all. If nothing else, it reminds us that there are no excuses allowed. Just because you've been wronged in court, out of court, does not give you the right to retaliate in kind. Right? There's no excuses. There's no shifting the blame. You can't say, because I've been victimized, I get to become the victimizer. No. No matter our condition, no matter our class, there's a proper set of manners that God's grace made minority people are to exhibit, specifically when we suffer injustices for doing good. And those manners are wrapped up tightly around the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Those manners are riveted to our prefiguring example who suffered for us bearing our crimes upon the tree. Those manners are growing out 
of the soil of the blood and the sweat-covered body of our Lord Jesus, who was reviled and did not revile in return, who suffered physical blows and verbal abuses, but did not retaliate in kind. These manners come because by His grace, by His cross, we are now dying to sin and living to righteousness And they arise, these manners arise, because by his wounds we were healed. But finally, it may be that someone here, it may be someone who's watching through Facebook Live, it may be someone who hears the audio at some point. It's someone that's listening is scarred and marred, and has been scarred and marred on the inside and on the outside like many of the believing slaves would have been that Peter is writing to. It may be that one has scarred and marred themselves. Usually with those welts and cuts comes shame. But I want you to look upward. For by his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus is not flailing you. Jesus is not shredding your flesh. Rather, He has taken all of that for you in His own body. For by His wounds, you have been healed. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord our God... Some of our brothers and sisters, I'm just thinking of Myanmar right now, and some places in the Middle East are under a lot of pressure. Some have been enslaved. That has happened more than once. I pray that you would be with them. That you would draw them to our Lord Jesus Christ, and that that would mark out the way for them, the path to follow, that they would see it. I do pray for their liberty. I pray for all of those who have been enslaved. Whether they are being sex trafficked or just human trafficked alone, Lord, that you would bring governments around to see the evil of what's going on and to start moving towards liberating. Lord, I pray that you would be with us for oftentimes, honestly, Lord, we make excuses when we're in a hot mess, when we're in trouble, when we feel wronged, we often make excuses. Forgive us for making excuses. Forgive us for shifting the blame. Help us, Lord, to draw near to Jesus, who had no deceit coming from his mouth when he suffered, who when he was reviled did not revile again, did not strike out when he was beaten. Draw us to Jesus. And Lord, I pray for any who are bearing deep scars, whether physically or emotionally. That you, Lord Jesus, would show the scars that you bore from them. And they would come to know by his wounds You have been healed. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.